Welcome to Hometown California, a production of the Rural County Representatives of California, advocating for California's rural counties for nearly 50 years. Hometown California tells the rural story through the eyes of those who live, work, and play in the rural communities of the Golden State. This is Hometown California. I'm your host, Paul Smith. Joining me today is Magnus Lofstrom, Policy Director of Criminal Justice and a Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. Welcome, Magnus. Thanks for having me, Paul. Magnus is no stranger to RCRC. He presented a few years ago at one of our annual meetings and did a great job. We like those presentations so much, we thought, you know what, let's talk to Magnus and bring him back for a podcast and get an update on what's going on with criminal justice. So, Magnus, big thank you for the work you do, the work you share with RCRC, and for spending some time updating us on what's going on in the criminal justice world. Thank you, Paul, for having me and giving me an opportunity to share a little bit about what we've found in our work over the last, uh, last few years. Yeah. So first, let's talk about PPIC as a whole, uh, maybe share with our listeners what PPIC is, then maybe your role and what your focus is in the criminal justice world. Sure. Yeah. So we at the Public Policy Institute of California, we are an independent, nonpartisan uh, research institute or think tank. We have offices in Sacramento and, and San Francisco, and we focus on data-driven research to inform policy discussions and provide, hopefully, uh, policy solutions to some of the more pressing issues that we face here in California. So broadly, that includes uh, you know, our K through 12 education system, our higher education system, our safety net, uh, water issues, obviously big uh, challenge for the state of California, and, and also the economy and, and political governance and reforms. Criminal justice is one of our core areas as well. And so I head up our uh, criminal justice team. And really what we focus on are, I think we can put it in, in three categories, three bullets, so to speak. First, as I'm sure we're going to be talking about, uh, there have been a number of reforms that we've passed in California over the last 10 years or so. And so we've been working on monitoring those reforms and their impacts. Having a good understanding of that, I think, is important as we move forward. Also, importantly, uh, we're looking at recidivism and, and ways for us to improve reentry outcomes among those who are involved with our correctional system. And then we're working on a topic that has received, rightfully so, a lot of attention in the last few months or so, and that's racial disparity in our criminal justice system. Yeah, those are all uh, very important things and intersect with counties very much both in the reform side and then the day-to-day management of what counties do. So let's get right into it. I think you alluded to a lot of reforms in California. Perhaps, Magnus, you can walk through and list some of the reforms that have been made in the last 10 years, and uh, we can take it from there. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many changes that we have made in California. And I think that, you know, the best way to get kind of an understanding of where where we're coming from and where we came from in California is to kind of look at what was the impetus behind all these reforms. And it really goes back to overcrowding in our state prison system that led to a federal court order to reduce our state prison population. And that was based on the state prison not being able to provide adequate mental health and, and health care to the inmate population. So we had those court ordered and we had to reduce our prison population. 
And at the same time, I had to deal with the health and the mental health care uh, system. So we were even under a, and, and are largely uh, still under federal receivership running those systems within our state prisons. Yeah, I think, Magnus, it's safe to say for our listeners that many of these reforms were really just driven by the federal courts. Yes, there's been a desire to make those changes by a variety of interest groups, but overriding this is the federal court system, you know, kind of instructing California to do some things that it had not done before. Is that basically kind of where we're at? That's at least where we were when we started, when we embarked on this path of some significant criminal justice reforms. We didn't have much of a, a choice. Our two choices were to expand our correctional system. Uh, this goes back to uh, around 2007, 2008. And as we all recall, that's the beginning of the Great Recession and the budget crisis that we faced here in California. So building additional costly prison was really not an option that we could afford. And if we didn't do anything, you know, the federal courts would force us to uh, release a number of prisoners. So we really were looking for what are the solutions that we can implement here that reduces the state prison system. And hopefully we can do this in a way where we can do it safely and reduce the uh, the spending on our system as well. And and hopefully as well, you know, longer term goal was to improve these reentry outcomes among those folks who are in a criminal justice system. So the big one was uh, arguably 2011 uh, realignment which really shifted a lot of correctional responsibilities from the state to the counties. So that's where those with a new conviction for a non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual offense, and and no history of those, instead of serving that time, a felony uh, in state prison, would not serve that time in a county jail. So that was a big shift. And also those who coming out of the state prison system were now under supervision of of county probation departments as well. So those are very big shifts that obviously had an impact on the counties. Yeah, and just to be clear, that's AB 109 was more commonly known in in county land. But yeah, what are the others? We did some rollbacks to our uh, three strikes, Prop 36 in 2012. That was also intended to reduce the the prison population and did so. And then importantly, we in 2014, through the uh, voter initiative process, we passed Prop 47. It uh, reclassified a number of drug and property offenses from felonies to misdemeanors. That was a big one. We've also legalized pot uh, since then. And Prop 57, that is uh, increasing the uh, number of opportunities for inmates and the incentive to participate in programming that is aimed at improving uh, reentry outcomes as well. So Prop 57 and in 2016 uh, is another one. And there are a number of measures that the state has been forced to take to draw down the prison population as well by the federal court. So big, big changes. Yeah, before we drill down on some of those, just as an overall thing, is California setting the trend here? Are we behind the trend? What's your sense of of all of this? I know other states, while not having the, the serious overcrowding, a lot of other states and even the federal government have looked at the criminal justice system and been in sticker shock with the price tag. So where does California fit in that paradigm? I don't think there's any doubt that we're at the forefront of, of criminal justice reform. And, and I think this is not you know, a time that we are at the forefront of this because we are more progressive. It's We were at the forefront of this and continue to be because we really didn't have much of a choice motivated by that federal court order to reduce the prison population. But it certainly has led to momentum of, of a number of changes. So Uh, The rest of the country is definitely looking for lessons from California. 
Uh, because as you say, there's, you know, whether one comes in from a perspective, a conservative uh, perspective where you're concerned about uh, spending, this is a costly system. Our state correctional system costs us about $13 billion a year. Uh, that does not include what the counties are spending on the correctional systems uh, within the counties. So they're costly. And obviously, we want to make sure that we manage uh, public safety and our know, correctional system in a cost-effective way. So if there are alternatives, then uh, that seems uh, worthwhile looking for. And, and if one comes in from the more liberal perspective, then it might be a concern about uh, those who are involved with the uh, criminal justice system, as well as their families and, and communities. So there's more of a bipartisan movement to make changes to uh, our criminal justice system. So you've done a lot of research in this uh, over the last several years. It is a moving target with ongoing reforms. But for our listeners, maybe give us kind of a uh, how's it going type uh, pulse on these reforms taken as a whole. What does your research say? What does your initial research say? And what is on the agenda to further evaluate this research? Because a lot of it takes time. A lot of it takes good data. Maybe Magnus, talk a little bit about that. There are a variety of, of areas that have been affected by these reforms. And so we've certainly seen that we've reduced our, our prison population. So that's the first thing. That, that's what motivated these changes, the need for reducing the prison population. We reached a, a peak in uh, around 2006. Since then, after these reforms, and this is pre-COVID, uh, the prison population dropped by more than 50,000 inmates. That's a reduction of about 28%. With the shift of AB 109, or realignment, uh, we saw at first the jail population increase in the counties and, and created some capacity challenges for the counties. A lot of early releases because the counties did not have the space. Um, state provided funding to uh, build up and add some capacity in terms of jails. Uh, but then when Prop 47 happened, we saw that the jail population as well decreased with the uh, reclassification of a number of felony offenses that were drug and property to misdemeanors. So in terms of incarceration, we're at a very low level. So that's the first thing. Our reliance on incarceration has gone back to uh, levels that we really hadn't seen since the uh, early 1990s before we passed three strikes. That's a big impact there. You know, now that begs questions, what happened to things like public safety, right? Right. Um, a lot of critics listening to this conversation might just say that AB 109 was just a, a shift from the state to the counties, more eloquently known as a dump. What does your research say, and can you comment about that? There's no doubt that we shifted those responsibilities. So individuals who were convicted of these offenses are, are serving their time in the counties as opposed to in the state prison system. If they are picked up on a supervision violation, the revocation for that is at the county level as well. You can't ship them back to the state prison system. And then, of course, it added to the burden of the uh, county probation department as well. And the uh, inmate population, even though of, of these released offenders who come into the counties, they have not just served time for a violent or, or sexual offense um, because they would stay under the, the state uh, parole system if that's the case. But so they're more for your, your property types of offenses. You have high recidivism rates uh, among those offenders as well. So the, it definitely presented challenges to the counties, but the state did provide uh, funding to the counties as well. And I think, you know, to me, one of the important takeaways from this is this happened very quickly and it, it undoubtedly presented a big challenge to the counties. 
And uh, when we look at then what, what happened in terms of crime rates or recidivism rates uh, in all of this, we haven't seen any evidence of an impact on violent crime as a result of our reforms. We have seen some impacts in terms of property crime when it came to realignment. We saw an uptick in, in auto thefts uh, right after realignment that we said that was due because of realignment. Uh, when you fast forward to Prop 47, same thing. We have no evidence of an impact on violent crime, but we did find some evidence of impacts on, on property crime. This time, it's on larcenies of car break-ins and some evidence of shoplifting as well. So there were some impacts there. And what's the research showing on the recidivism? Because that's the other half of the equation. It was not just about the crime rate. Are we doing a little better job, either at the state or local level, on making sure folks don't reoffend? My understanding is much of the AB 109 debate was also about trying to get better services, better rehabilitation services at the local level to these offenders and hopefully steer them in a much better direction. Right. Absolutely. That was definitely, uh, you know, motivation uh, behind it and, and the way that it was designed. And the same thing with, uh, you know, Prop 47 that, that actually provided some funding for uh, reentry programming. And this is kind of a situation where it's uh, whether the, the glass is half full or half empty depends on who you are. We haven't seen strong evidence that actual reoffending is is down as a result of these reforms. It obviously doesn't mean that there are no programs that have led to improvements, but uh, broadly speaking, we haven't seen evidence of these, uh, you know, of improvement in terms of recidivism rates or, or reoffending rates. We spend much less in, in terms of locking people up for a uh, supervision violation in the past. It was not unusual that someone who was picked up on a parole supervision would spend two, three months in state prison. That's pretty costly. With realignment, that was really limited to 10 days or less in most cases. And so with that, we haven't seen an increase in, in reoffending rates either. So I think that the uh, the jury is still out on it. I think that I think we should give it a lot of credit to the counties for reacting and, and handling these challenges, because clearly it's not, not an easy uh, situation to deal with. Um, but yes, I think it's fair to say we haven't seen the strong evidence yet that we are significantly and broadly speaking successful at improving reentry. And, and that's part of what research you know, seeks to do, right? Right. But we can identify the, the types of solutions and strategies that can improve uh, reentry. And, uh, and you mentioned data challenges, and that's a big part of this. This, this is challenging to get the data that can truly allow us to speak to to this issue and identify what are those most effective solutions that have been implemented throughout California? Uh, what are the ones that can be replicated in other areas and possibly to a, to a broader offender population? Magnus, from what I'm picking up in your conversation is that when you look at these reforms, particularly over the last 10 years, it sounds like we have met the test of the federal court. So we've kind of solved that problem, i.e. we've lowered the prison population to get under those court orders. So that's obviously been a success. Second is you just have not seen violent crime rise in any great and noticeable amount due to these reforms. But obviously crimes against properties, there's been an uptick on that. And then the jury's still out on whether programs at the local level have improved recidivism rates and assisted those. So overall, kind of a mixed bag with that report card, if that's in fact what it is. Well, I think it depends on how you're looking at it, right? In terms of the outcomes, if we focus on the public safety system, the crime rates and recidivism rates, 
we're not seeing increases except to, you know, I gave you some examples of property crime that we tie to, to the reforms, but we also, we are, we have many, many fewer individuals who are in our correctional system. And we're talking about dollars saved from, from that. And also in terms of the lives of the individuals, you know, are part of the criminal justice system. I don't know, have been part of it and their families and, and communities as well. So it's hard to tell, but those are what we're seeing at, at a high level, as I said. And that's, it's not only at the, at the local level. We're talking about the state parole system as well. Are you aware of any other states that are looking into California's model, both the shifting from the state to the county with respect to more direct supervision by the counties? Are you seeing other states look at that? I think when it comes to the uh, the, the supervision of released offenders, we were and we continue to be a little bit of an outlier in the sense that we mandate supervision of released offender to a much, much larger extent than most other states. Essentially, all offenders who come out of the state prison system are uh, you know, either going to the counties for uh, post-release community supervision or in the state parole system. So in a sense, you know, we are quite different there, and uh, we're probably looking at other states to see if that's something we can reduce effectively as well. So that's one area where I would say we're not at the forefront of efforts and changes. And conversely, can you assess what might be out there that's working in other states that maybe California should look to? Well, I think one of the things we're all you know, looking at now is bail reform and pretrial detention. When we look at the county jail population, the, the vast majority of people who are in county jail are there on pretrial detention. And so then there are questions about what can be done. Can we reduce the pretrial detention levels that we are currently experiencing and we can we do so safely. So there are states that have you know, implemented bail reform and handled this differently. Uh, and that's certainly something that uh, people here in California have looked at, but we might actually be seeing some changes to uh, pretrial detention and bail in California in the future. Right. The voters are going to weigh in on that in November because there's a, a referendum of a statute the legislature passed a couple of years ago drastically overhauling the uh, bail system and the pretrial system. So that one's going to be an interesting one, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. This is moving from bail being what determines whether you have uh, money to uh, get out of county jail or if it's uh, using uh, risk assessment tools, which is basically using data to predict uh, the likelihood that someone's going to show up to court for a future court date or commit a crime while uh, being out. So that's a big, big shift, and uh, will be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, just putting a little plug in. We're going to be talking about that proposition in some upcoming uh, episodes as we uh, look at all of the propositions before voters head to the polls in November or actually just uh, fill out their ballot at home with the uh, mail-in requirements. Let's talk a little bit about your research and kind of what you're seeing from a number of aspects. One, How's it going in rural California? And then obviously the big elephant in the room is the issue of racial disparity. It's a hot topic these days. Maybe spend a little bit of time of where you see the disparities both between urban and rural uh, sentencing and incarceration and offending rates, and then as well kind of that uh, racial overview. Right. So one area where we have looked at, we've contrasted the rural versus, uh, you know, the more urban counties is in terms of arrests. We've been uh, working on uh, a multi-year project where we're trying to get a better sense of what the, uh, the trends are in terms of arrests in, in California. 
but also differences across jurisdictions in the state and especially the counties. And we see some interesting patterns there. One is if we look at, we see, for example, that the arrest rates measured by the number of, of arrests uh, per 100,000 residents in a county. What we see there is that varies greatly across California. Where some counties uh, where you find the highest arrest rates, those arrest rates are about three times that of those counties where we have the lowest one. And what we see there is that the counties with the high arrest rate, they actually tend to be the rural counties. And we have looked at them. What can explain these kind of patterns? Why would they be higher in rural counties? And there are kind of like two factors that seem to be uh, behind that. One, which is not surprising at all, that's crime rates. So the differences that we see in the rest rates across counties tend to be driven primarily by differences in crime rates. So if there's a high violent crime rate, you're going to see higher uh, violent arrest rates as well, and then more broadly, higher arrest rates. So so that's one part of it. And then there's another part, which is not unrelated to the crime rate, and that's about economic opportunities and economic conditions. So it tends to be that uh, you know the higher arrest counties are also those that have higher levels of poverty and fewer economic opportunities. So that's on just like broader level where we see more engagement in terms of arrests. But if we then focus in on racial disparity, and how that differs across counties. We see different patterns there. It's definitely not one uh, urban versus rural counties where you see that it's higher primarily in rural or urban counties. The factor that, that kind of typifies the counties where we have the highest racial disparity measured by the differences in the arrest rate of whites compared to African-Americans are really, uh, maybe surprisingly, are in the relatively wealthy counties. So it's not in poor counties where we see the highest racial disparity in, in California. It's really in the, in the relatively wealthy counties. And they're the, the relatively wealthy counties of, of the Bay Area is where we see the highest uh, levels of uh, racial disparity in terms of arrests. Does your research show that certain crimes are committed more likely in a rural area? For example, I would assume production of illegal drugs, methamphetamines, maybe higher in rural areas and urbans or you or is you know auto theft higher in urban areas than rural areas is, have you been able to determine that we did look at that and it's quite consistent with uh, what you're describing there paul it's especially when we're looking at drugs so one big component of that uh, that drives those differences uh, rural versus urban are really drug offenses that's a big part of it we also see, you know, if we look at it in terms of uh, the types of crime rates that are uh, associated with with the higher arrest rates, it's, well, violent offenses, no surprise there. If there's a high violent crime rate, you're going to see higher violent arrest rates. Uh, but just broadly, the uh, the higher burglary rates that we see in California tend to be in the rural counties. And that's a factor that's also contributing to the higher arrest rates in rural counties. Yeah, that's interesting. Where do you get your data and how do you put all this together? We get our data from a variety of sources and we spend a lot of time trying to get get the data that can speak to these issues in a credible and reliable way. You know, we're an independent, nonpartisan organization and, and it's very, very important for us that we continue to have a reputation of being objective and reliable. One way to do that is to uh, make our research data-driven, and we are definitely an organization that relies on data. So we get it from a variety of sources. We have worked with counties themselves. We work with county uh, sheriff department and, and probation departments that have provided us with invaluable data that have helped us do research 
especially on around realignment. We also work with the state agencies. So we really collaborate with a variety of agencies at both the state and the local level to get as much as up-to-date data as possible. And that's kind of the challenge that we run into. It's like it takes a lot of effort and, and oftentimes there's a lag of several years. So that's why it can be a little bit frustrating to get the answers about what the most recent reforms are doing in terms of their you know, effectiveness and ability to uh, reach the goals that uh, were set. So what's next? We talked a little bit about perhaps bail reform and the voters weighing in on that. Voters are also going to consider another criminal justice measure, maybe uh, highlight what that is and where that could impact. And then maybe Magnus will wrap up with where do we go from here and what thoughts you have, regardless of these two ballot measures, where you think things are headed. We have a report coming out next week, actually, on pretrial detention and bail reform. We will continue to monitor and, and keep an eye on, on what happens in terms of bail reform, depending on what the, the voters decide. We also have Prop 20, includes some reversal of the reclassifications that took place as a part of Prop 47. And Proposition 20 is the measure I just alluded to, where the voters will be weighing in on that in November. Correct. And so we had a report that came out just a month or two ago where we looked at Prop 47 and racial disparity. Uh, We found that Prop 47 uh, led to uh, decreases in racial disparity and especially in the types of offenses that were reclassified and especially in terms of drug offenses. So we actually have less racial disparity as a result of, of that particular reform. And so where we're going next is looking at other efforts within the criminal justice system that would reduce racial disparity. And interestingly, in this pandemic, a number of changes have have been made to our criminal justice system motivated by public health issues. And that includes local directives to reduce arrests and bookings into county jails. It includes the uh, judicial council's emergency measure to uh, put in place a zero bail for most lower level of offenses. And what we're doing, and we have just gotten data from the State Department of Justice, uh, we're going to look at how that's, those kind of measures have affected racial disparity as well. And another big, big issue is coming back to this reentry side of things and the role of our state prison system and those uh, individuals who come out of our state prison system. So we are currently uh, working to get data to do evaluation on programming within the state prison system. So those are some of the things that we have in the pipeline. And given the uh, how quickly things change in, in this crazy world of ours, I'm sure there'll be other topics as well. Magnus Lostrom of the Public Policy Institute of California, PPIC. Fascinating stuff. Always learn a lot by talking to you. And I know our listeners will, will share that view as well. So thanks for spending some time with us, Magnus. We really appreciate it. And I hope our listeners were able to Get some more insights. Also encourage listeners to go to the Public Policy Institute of California's website. They have some fascinating stuff, not just on criminal justice, but a whole host of public policy conversations. Once again, Magnus, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for having me. You've been listening to Hometown California, a production of the Rural County Representatives of California. Subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and be sure to rate and review this podcast. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and thanks for listening. 